Okay, good stuff. So we're Rock and Bran. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. It's taken a wee bit of time for us to get in contact. <laughs> on bo- on both of our parts, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, it's going to be worth it in the end. That's the main thing. Yeah. So it is. So first thing I want to ask, like, obviously, you, I want you to just tell us a wee bit about yourself. Uh, first of all, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, you want me to go way back and do the full story or the high level who am we I right your now? time, whatever suits you best. All right. <laughs> um, so in, in, a, in a nutshell today, um, by day, I'm a, an executive at an insurance company. And by night, I try to help people change their lives, which is what brought me to you. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a, a whole backstory in that that starts when I was a little kid. Um, my parents got divorced when I was really young, and that led me to have a lot of issues with anxiety, this sense that like everything was falling apart, and I had nowhere to turn, so I turned to food. And you know, I sought comfort in food, and, and I became pretty seriously obese starting at about six years old. Um, carried about 100 extra pounds through you know, my early teen years, and at the end of high school or university, whatever you want to call it, somewhere around age 17, I lost weight. Uh, I lost about 90, 95 pounds, something like that, uh, through just a different relationship with exercise and diet, thanks to a really great person. Uh, this guy worked at my high school who took an interest and in, in a caring approach with me, which was, was huge and very transformational. But what we didn't do was work on why I was obese in the first place. It's not because I moved too little and ate too much. It's because I had serious anxiety issues. Uh, so like a lot of people who lose weight, I put a bunch of it back on. And, um, that was sort of my, my twenties. I would say, I just looked American, you know, like I didn't, I didn't look obese again. I just looked like everybody else. And Americans are just sort of like chronically unhealthy, uh, or many of us are. So, you know, again, it's, it's just because that anxiety was there. And as I felt the stresses of adulthood starting to build, I had my comfort, you know, and, and I didn't have time to work out as much as I had when I had lost weight before. So, Little by little, the scale shifted, and I started to put weight back on. And it would have kept going if not for a forced wake-up call in 2011. And that's that's the moment where everything transitioned for me, where um, I was 32, a two-year-old son, and my wife um, was on her deathbed. And she's still here today because of a, a number of pretty serious changes that we both made, but doctors gave up on her. They had nothing else they could do. And uh, her primary care doctor called to just say, you know, he's going on vacation. There's nothing more left to do. Take her to the emergency room if you need to. And he hung up. Um, So that, you know, (laughs) that's one of those moments that we wish we never face. But in Mm -hmm. hindsight, if I didn't face it, I'm not sure I'd be here. Yeah. Uh, She certainly wouldn't be, which is ironic that facing, you know, getting that call that that's it. The end is, is near is part of the reason why she's still alive. As crazy as that sounds. No, no, because it obviously, it wakes you up what, what is actually important. Yeah. What is important. Yeah. No. Well, you obviously wake up call. Yeah, no, I saw it. I mean, I got off the phone with that doctor. This is June 30th, 2011. Like, I'll never forget the moment, mm-hmm. you know, what, what the day looked like, the scene. I walked back into our bedroom and um, my wife was in bed as she basically was all day at this point. She's barely 100 pounds. Um, and our son was looking at her. And he's, he turned and looked at me. And as soon as his eyes hit me, it was just like, that was the moment for me. Is I just sort of said to myself, what on earth am I doing? You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the husband I'm, she I'm needs not, at all. I'm, not the husband she, well, I'm very much, uh, 
caught in this anxiety spiral of all the things that are going wrong and all the things that are hitting me and what it's going to mean for me and how am I supposed to work and be a single dad and deal with, you know, losing my wife and why won't this stop? You know, it's just all of it. And mm-hmm. I was so caught in the anger and the anguish of that, that she just needed me to hear her. She just needed me to, to not just dismiss what she was feeling and rush to like, well, I have to do this or why can't you just do that? Or, mm-hmm. um, I, I was always looking for a fix. Like I'm a fixer by nature because, you know, as a little kid, like my world unraveled and I couldn't do anything about it, but I'm an adult, you know, now I have all these means I can do something about it. So that's what I do. I jump in and I try to fix. And that's not what mm-hmm. she wanted. You know, she no. wanted someone to just hear her and, uh, and be by her side. And, and that got in the way of all the things that were hitting me in the face. So it's just kind of like, let me shove you aside because that doesn't matter. And that, mm-hmm. that's not going to help her get through it at all. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, if you don't mind me asking, how is she doing now? So it's a chronic illness. She'll face it you know, for, for the rest of her life, but it's manageable and it's sort of in a place of stasis because she lives a very different life as do I, um, as does our son as well. So we've grown tremendously from that. And, um, she's a pretty amazing person, not just because of what she survived, but because of how she grew coming out of it. And so a lot of people, um, it, we'll get to this, but a lot of people saw me lose weight and then started reaching out to me for help. And that's sort of how I became a, a life coach just sort of serendipitously. So people saw her not losing weight, but they saw her not dying. So like, you know, you think uh, losing a bunch of weight, like that stands out to people. The fact that you're still standing, that stands out a heck of a lot more. So people started reaching out to her and she ended up getting um, a degree in, in functional medicine coaching, uh, functional health coaching rather. And um, so she's coaching people now. Which is amazing. Yeah. She's, she's such an inspiration. I don't, I don't know if she fully allows what she's achieved to inspire her. Like if she fully grasped just what she's been through and where she is now relative to who she was before. But, um, standing in reflection, it's pretty hard not to just be blown away. Now she's helping others, you know? Yeah. And yeah. And, and it's not, it's not minor stuff. She's helping others survive, which is, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty profound. And how's your son doing? He is, um, he's just the greatest person in the world. I mean, honestly, and, and I know I'm biased, but it's true. (laughs) (laughs) I can admit that. But it's, so look, if, if I was facing my, if dealing with my parents' divorce led to all this negativity and issues for me, losing your mother when you're two years old, right before your eyes, surely is so much more impactful. So for me, it wasn't just about what I saw in my role as a husband. It was also as a father. You know, if this little boy has any shot at being happy, normal kid after losing his mom, it's not going to be with the father I was as his only parent. So if you look at who he is, and he is a really happy, appreciative kid, like he finds joy in everything. It's mind boggling, but he just, everything is, is beautiful to him, um, which is really, really cool to watch and really inspiring. It makes you wish for like, you know, it's a bit of innocence, but He's nine. He's not so young that it's just pure, like, you know, being sheltered in innocence. Like, he understands that there's pain in the world, but he appreciates things anyway. Um, That's really beautiful to watch. And if you think about what he went through, and he was old enough to know things weren't okay, but not old enough to understand what it was. But you could see, like, when she would be sick after that really serious moment, it would affect him. Like, he he would behave differently. He would be upset. He'd be more reactionary. so to think that he's the way he is now, 
speaks volumes to the kind of person he is intrinsically and, and the, the, the person he can be. And also just for who my wife is as his mom and the examples that we both have evolved into. I was about to say, you're, you're forgetting about the father there as well. Well, I, get, I got that bit too. <laughs> I mean, so that's, that's the third piece. And what I found on that day on June 30th was what I call my true motivation, my true purpose, my, my why, like whatever words you want to use for it. But it was about my role as her husband and how important that was given the gravity of the situation. Even more so, my role as his father. You know, so what my son needs for me and what I, like, I love him above everything in the world. So to be failing him in any way, shape, or form in such a big way, that really just smacked me in the face. But the last piece of it was I was failing myself. You know, I had always seen my role in this world as the fixer, as the anxious guy is like, well, that's good because it helps people and it stops problems from worsening and it made me good at my job. So I sort of like, I defined myself that way and I saw it as um, a bit mandatory. Like, this is who I am. So this is my life and it means I'm going to be miserable, but you know, I'm going to, I'm going to fix all these things and keep things stable. Yeah, and, um, and I finally just realized like, why does that have to be the case? Like, why can't I fix things and not be miserable? Because somehow I'm still standing. You know, all of these impossibilities, all these horrible situations I can't possibly get through, somehow I've gotten through them. Yeah. So isn't that a bit interesting? Like, okay, maybe there's more to my capability set. It's like you said, like, you know, part of my son being who he is is me. It's like, yeah, maybe I'm not as terrible and, and don't have to be resigned to that terribleness as I thought it was. The mind's, the mind's a wonderful thing, isn't it? How, how you think, you know, what your sort of role is and the, the bad things that you think you're doing yeah. and you're, you're, you're not good enough. Yeah. You know, it's an amazing thing. But then this has obviously led on to, you've wrote a book. <laughs> yep. So you have. Now, I've read the book, the whole thing. <laughs> so you. I have. Very, very good. What, what sort of, why did you decide to write that book? So for me, and I'm, I'm curious which version of the book you read, probably the original. It's, it's since changed and the missing link in the first one was self-love, which is exactly what we were just touching on. Okay. Um, so I have self-love for myself. I'm not judging myself for leaving that out up front, but I want to make sure that I, I send you the new content that's in I was the revised say, version. So I haven't read the whole book then, right? <laughs> you read the, the original whole book. Okay. Um, so the reason why I wrote it was, you know, I, I had some really blatant things that I wanted to change and I started on them the next morning. So it was July 1st, 2011, where I said, look, there's some things that aren't 100% of my control, like whether my wife makes it or not. I can contribute to a better outcome, but mm -hmm. it's not in my control and I need to stop trying to fix it. So I can't, I can't use that as a key goal, but there are some things that really are purely in my control that I'm failing myself on. And I need to fix these things for myself and get myself to a better place so I can go on to whatever else I want to achieve. The first was, was my, my weight and my health situation. Um, so no more. I, I said, like, the first part of my life, I was obese. The second part of my life, I was trying not to be. That's not a great way to live your life. Like, hi, I'm the guy who tries not to be fat again. Not so, not so entertaining, is it? No. Um, that so I was like, no more of that. I'm going to get myself to the right weight and I'm going to stay there. And I'm going to be a healthy person, not a fat guy trying not to, to fulfill his destiny as the fat guy. So that was the first thing. And I set, you know, specific goals, specific action plan by a specific date. Um, and I, I beat it by a couple of months, which is pretty wild as I look back on just how aggressive it was. Yet I got there anyway. Because once you bring purpose into the equation, 
you know, watch out because you're, you're going to get there in a, a much stronger way. Um, I had issues at work. My job was becoming very political and that's just not how I'm cut. And I saw it coming. It was still early days. Um, but because of my wife's situation, I couldn't just walk out and, you know, quit without another job. So I need to take some steps to try to prime the pump of opportunity to find mm-hmm. something else. Um, and the last thing, most importantly, was I was now acutely aware of the anxiety issues from the divorce. My parents got divorced when I was so young, I never dealt with it because I didn't really understand it. Um, and my, my wife had been pushing me to get help. And every time she did, it was like, you know, I can't make time during the day on a regular basis because of my job. And I can't do it at night because you need me at home. And, and I was thinking about all of the appointments ever which just was too much and I can't make that work. And it's like, well, I'm not going to all the appointments ever right now. I just need to make one appointment and find some way to make that one work. And we'll worry about number two when there's a number two to worry about. Yes. And so I just said, you know, enough excuses. I'm going to go do this. Um, and, you know, if anything, this was the worst time. I should have done it a year earlier before she was sick, but um, she was so supportive and was like, we'll figure it out. It's one appointment. Like we can find a way to make an hour work. So we did. Um, but I realized I had to solve that anxiety bit or I don't know that you ever fully solve it, but you get to a different place with it. You learn how to deal with it. You learn how to be aware of it. And and that's actually the crux of do a day. Like it's, you know, you, you find your true purpose and it was thrust upon me. There are ways to find it, even if you don't have a gun in your face. And that's what I do with a, with a coaching. Um, you set real meaningful goals that are tied to where you actually want your life to be. You know, when I had a hundred pounds to lose, it's not, the goal is not five pounds. That's just a step along the way. The goal is a hundred pounds. Now that's very daunting. And a lot of people won't start. I didn't start for decades, you know, but that's where do a day itself comes in. And that's how I started to live my life is really just in each moment we only have right now. We never have yesterday. We never have tomorrow. It's only the present moment. Just froze up. You got it? She froze up. It's fro- you got it? Uh, that's it back now, yep. All right. Uh, can you hear okay or no? Can you hear okay or no? I can hear you. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can right. you hear me? I, okay? Yeah, I can just I hear an echo of my voice. I hear an echo of my voice. Okay. Do you need a uh, video? video? No. Should no. We, we want to kill that for preserve the bandwidth? Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Do you want to show? Yeah, there we go. Hopefully that helps. That does help quite a bit. Okay. Um, so do a day itself is is a way to execute. Essentially, we live our lives so caught between yesterday and tomorrow, and this is the the key notion of of do a day. And it's the word day that really comes into play here. Is yesterday is all this pain from what we've had done to us, what we've experienced, or it's regret for things that we've done wrong or we believe we've done wrong, or maybe it's longing for something we lost. And we bring all of that pain into the today. And we make judgment calls. We make, we take actions from that place of pain. So, you know, as an example, you have an argument with someone yesterday and it's unresolved. Next time you see them, you know, you're, you're going to talk to them today. You go into it with that feeling of the argument and you're probably not going to act in a way that will lead to a, a friendly conversation. You're probably going to go in with trepidation you may be suspicious. You may speak differently, which may trigger them to react a certain way. So all that negativity from yesterday is still present today, and it, and it ends up ruining today. And by the same token, it happens with tomorrow. 
So, you know, that was my big thing is all this anxiety about all the things that are going to hit me later, all the things that are yet to come. And the thing is, we don't actually know if that's true. We don't know what's going to play out. But if we spend our present moments obsessing about that, invariably, we end up making the wrong calls today that may just bring about that bad outcome anyway, or at mm -hmm. least not help us to avoid it, you know, at all. So you end up throwing away the right now for yesterday and tomorrow. And it's never yesterday. It's never tomorrow. It's only right now. Mm -hmm. So then in each day you wake up and you do what you need to do in pursuit of that big goal, free from, you know, all the things you did or didn't do before and, and how well or poorly you did them and free from the sense of all the times you're going to have to do it going forward or the troubles that you believe you may face. You know, you're not, I said, you're not scheduling 80 appointments. You're just scheduling the one. You're not losing 100 pounds. You're just doing what you have to do today to contribute to that. And that's a very freeing way to be. And that just, you know, that's what came to be that morning, July 1st. And then people started to see the change because it happened pretty rapidly. And I was, I was pretty social about it. I was pretty open because I wanted that, um, that not just the support, but also a bit of like um, the onus that people expected it of me. And so I had to deliver on it. I wanted to be quite clear that, look, this is what I'm trying to achieve. And so then there were expectations set and uh, it was a bit of social pressure. So through that, I started coaching people because they would come out of the woodworks and say, hey, you know, I see what you're achieving. I've really been struggling. Can you help me? And, you know, lo and behold, this, this sort of side business of coaching grew up overnight, really. Um, and it came to a head in 2015 where I was talking to a mentor I had and I just said, you know, I love this coaching stuff. I don't have 24 hours a day to do it, but even if I did, it's still not enough. Like I, I get such a rush out of helping people transform and right. watching them have that wake up and, and, you know, completely just change their life. It's never about any one aspect It's a very holistic thing. Mm -hmm. um, and he's like, well, you need to think about how you can scale that up in a way that stays genuine to, to who you are so that you can have that broader impact. And I thought about it and it was pretty clear to me. It's like, I need to write a book and I know exactly what I'm going to say. I know exactly what it's going to be called. And um, once I had that inspiration, I was in San Francisco for work. I had to fly back East. It was a seven hour flight. I wrote like 30% of the book on that flight because it just <laughs> like, it just came to me, you know, it was so clear is this is exactly what I need to do. Um, so that's, that's what brought me to the book. And I know it's a very long way to get there, but no. That's what the book's about. And, and there was just, once I had the thought, there was no way to not write it, you know? Yeah. But see, the thing is, like, even that title, I love that title because to me, um, as I always say to people, there's no such thing as tomorrow because, you know, when tomorrow comes, it's today, you know? So there's yeah. actually no thing as the future, you know? So why are we worried about what's going to come in the future? It's literally here and now. Um, that you have to worry about. You know? So yeah. that's why whenever I saw that title, I thought, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and it hit me in such a uh, random moment. So you, you've read the book, so you know this, but I'm a vegan. And the way yeah. I became vegan was reading a book by this guy who my wife says I have a man crush on, and I'm happy to admit <laughs> it. There's, there's no shame in it. Um, this guy, Rich Roll, who's amazing, and uh, oh, reading his, his autobiography, Finding Ultra, it, it's awesome. And he just sort of he draws a line in the sand and sort of calls you out for it. He's like, you know, if you're not, why haven't you tried being vegan? Like enough with the excuses. And that was exactly my problem is every time I thought about it and I've read books by some of his peers. So it's, this wasn't the first time I considered it, but I made every excuse in the book about all the tomorrows and none of them's happening. You know, it's like, well, what about my son's birthday? He'll want me to have cake with him. And 
you know, but the cake will have eggs and dairy in it and that's not vegan. So then I can't do it ever because that one day once a year or, you know, the business trip and there's nothing else to eat or like, and it's like, look, none of those things is happening. So I'm throwing away any opportunity to do better right now because of something that may or may not occur ever again. That's ridiculous. And just because, you know, I've, I have had birthday cake with my son. I have had situations where, you know, we, we went to Disney World and I had Mickey pancakes with him. And you know what? Those aren't vegan. But it's not like I just said, okay, well, now it's all over because I screwed up. So I've ruined my entire future and, and any chance of, of doing this because I had, you know, this moment where I didn't do it. It's like, no, I can still do it. I made that, that choice then. I had a specific reason for it. I understood why. But I'm going to get right back on it. So I said to myself in that moment as I, I read this book is it was like it was uh, right before bedtime at night. And I was like, you know what? I can do it tomorrow. I got nothing planned. You know, I'm just going to go to the office. I normally eat a salad at lunch anyway. So I just said out loud, I was like, I can do it day. And it struck me. I was like, oh, that's exactly <laughs> like, that's what I've been doing. But for some reason, with this particular example, I had still been making every future based anxiety ridden excuse. And it just struck me as like, get out of your own way. These things aren't happening. So let go of it and just try it. And what I found is once I released all of that future pressure, it was so easy. And so then I, you know, after the first day, I was like, yeah, I'll do another day. And that was um, January of 2015. Yeah. So just past three years. And I haven't been 100% vegan 100% of the time. I've been 100% vegan 99% of the time. And that's fine. And And as a result, I actually... I don't have to think about my weight or how much I exercise or don't exercise at all. My weight is, is a complete non-issue. Actually, right now it's a little bit lower than I wish it was. I'm, I've started running again after some knee surgery. Um, and that always brings my weight down. So I need to find that balance again. But yeah, this is, it, it's really interesting. The veganism has opened up this possibility for me that exercise is 100% about whether I enjoy it or not. It has nothing to do with my physical fitness, which is really cool. It makes it so freeing and it just becomes a passion exercise instead of a bit of punishment or control, you know, control of my weight or my cholesterol level or anything. It's really nice. That's because then that's led you into you've done marathons then as well, isn't that right? Yeah, I'm I'm in the middle of doing marathons, meaning I've done one and I have every expectation of doing another. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, and that's why I'm, I'm fine to say I'm a marathoner and use that as an open-ended statement because I will absolutely do another. I just, right now with uh, promoting the book and I have a very busy day job, um, for me to add on marathon training wouldn't be wise for my overall health. It's, it's a bit too much, but I will get there. I have no doubt about that. And what do you do at the minute? Am I right in saying you're in insurance? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. <laughs> You said it, not me. Yeah, I like it, but I, I also appreciate that that's kind of a conversation killer. People are like, all right, well, take care. Don't really want yeah, to hear about your job. That's your day job. And then, you know, you've all this other stuff that you do outside of it. You know that, as you said, you know, you're coaching and you're you're doing your, well, you were doing your marathon training and stuff like that. You've wrote a book. So, yeah, yeah there's quite a lot outside of what you do during the day. Yeah. You know? Quite a lot. I have a very, <laughs> I have a very full life for sure. Every now and then I sleep every few days. Yeah, do you actually sleep? <laughs> I've heard about it. It's, uh, it's on the bucket list. <laughs> very good, very good. Because I put down here, whatever you, I was reading in the book. There was a, a part about you mentioned there before about your your PE teacher, you know, yeah. in high school, and sort of his philosophy about health and fitness. What what sort of was that? Because 
you know, he seemed to really know what he was talking about. Yeah, he is. He is just. Um, I know I already said my son is the most amazing person, so I'm not going to use that phrase. But he's, he's, yeah, he's a close second in a different way, but he's incredible. Now, the two of them have met a couple of times, so that's kind of that amount of power and beauty in one one room. Um, he is he is an absolutely amazing human being who has such a, a care for everyone around him. And that's the attitude that he came into his relationship with me. So, um, this is a guy who I don't know how old he is. He's far older chronologically than he is physically. I think he, I'm not going to say he's, he's probably somewhere in his late fifties, early sixties. He's probably like 93 and he just looks that good, but he is so unbelievably fit. Um, and so it's a bit intimidating. You know, for me being a hundred pounds overweight, I would see him. I didn't know the guy. And I was always like, I would presume things about him. And then I, I actually got to meet him and found he's completely different from the prejudice that I had, you know, the, the prejudging I was doing based on his looks, that he's not this sort of like, you know, ultra fit jock who throws his fitness in your face. He, he finds a way to welcome you into it. So my relationship with wellness, with fitness was always, you're fat and lazy. What's wrong with you? Stop being so fat. Why are you eating so much? Can't you move any faster? Why are you wheezing? You know, every, every bit of downtrodden judgment. And his was, you know, there's this amazing world of things you can do out there. What do you want to do? What do you enjoy doing? You know, not like career, but physically, like what are the things you enjoy doing? I'm not going to make you run laps. And I, I took his, he taught the PE class, the physical education class, which in almost every school is a total blow off, but not with him. So he uses it as an exploration of what sort of activities do you enjoy? You know, and so I, I was a teenage boy. So of course I wanted to lift weights. You want to get muscles and you want girls to notice you. And of course, as a fat kid, like that was a really big deal because they were noticing me for all the wrong reasons. So he, he taught me about weightlifting and different exercises to do and started to get me to see my potential in that. And actually, it was the first time with any sort of physical fitness, I was really good at something. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I was a big guy, you know, I had a big frame and, and, um, I had big legs from carrying around this huge upper body that I had, not, not muscularly, but just, you know, in, in terms of weight. And so I got to um, really get into this weightlifting thing. And then he added some cardio into it in ways that I would enjoy and never in like the punishment of go run laps or something like that. Because he knew if he has me doing that, I'm going to back out. You know, I'm not going to engage in it. And I'll, I'll do it because I have to in that class. But as soon as it's done, I'm going to go eat myself silly and, uh, you know, try to make up for that punishment. So he just took this much more beautiful compassionate, um, caring approach to letting me explore and understand what I enjoyed. And so really, without any conscious effort on my part, I just found myself enjoying the physical fitness work that he had me doing. And it, it became a bit of a problem that like, I was seeking out every opportunity to work out because I liked it so much. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, you know, they were trying to lock up the weight room and I wouldn't leave. <laughs> or, you know, um, it, once I lost weight actually, and, and through that process, it did go too far in the other direction where, and, and he was concerned for me in that is I wasn't sticking my finger down my throat, but I was bulimic in the sense that I was purging through exercise. And I mean like three to four hours of intense cardio a day. Um, and it got to a point where if I didn't get my cardio in, I was such a just crabby monster to be around because I was so, I mean, this was, this was the guy who was trying not to be fat again, right? So yeah. this was like 
my world's about to, I had all the anxieties. It's like, everything's going to fall apart if I don't get, you know, it can't be three hours and 45 minutes. That's worthless. It has to be four hours. That's dangerous. Yeah, it is dangerous. And he really cared about me and tried to get me to see it. And of course I wouldn't listen because I was caught in this anxiety spiral. Um, And so it was, it was too much at that point, but he, I'm, I'm still in touch with him. I actually just saw him recently. Um, it's been, it's great for me to watch him seeing the impact that he has because that's all he really cares about. Mm-hmm. And so then, because then that leads on to, I've noticed you've done your personal training qualification and yeah, also right. your behavior change specialization. I know all about this because that's my day job. Yeah. <laughs> Someone is offered health and fitness qualifications. Yeah. So obviously with his sort of philosophy on things as in why you're doing the things you're doing, I'm guessing that's why you went and done not just your personal training, but your behavior change. Yeah. And the the behavior change is where I really focused in. Um, that's what I really cared about. Yeah. Um, so the personal training was a mix of, I want to understand the physical better. And I, you know, I never gotten that education. And um, I, so many people were coming to me about weight loss. I felt um, at a disadvantage for helping them in that way without knowing some of the, the more structural components of it. What's really funny is after I got the certification, I had I never did any personal training with anyone ever again. <laughs> I had only done that kind of stuff before I actually had the certification, which is really yeah. funny. But the the uh, the knowledge is invaluable, and a piece of that goes on the behavioral side. And I was like, you know, that really triggered something for me because that's actually where I'm focusing in in my coaching work. It's not you know, we're going to go run this much and we're going to do these sets and that's all fine. But that again is like, that's dealing with the, as, as much a symptom as anything else in their life, it's not addressing the root cause. And because of what I had been through and what I'd come to understand, I knew that actually, if we focus on the root cause issues, the lifestyle stuff will take care of itself. And you know, you, you have to do some work for it, but as long as the issues really are there, you're just going to be going from one problem to the next. And as soon as you fix one and move on to another, the first one comes back up or a new one crops up because there's still something broken in the person. And so that's where I wanted to to pursue the behavioral side of it to really get into, you know, how do we, how do we change the way you're feeling about things and, and things, the most important thing is yourself. Like that's, that's the starting point where all of it, if, if you don't have self love, nothing else that we do is really going to matter. Because you're not going to believe you deserve better, and you're not going to think you're capable of better. And if those two things aren't in place, you know, then you'll never have it. You know, not with that attitude. Yes, because that that just comes back to well, you know, people want to do things, you know, they want to change the body and all that sort of stuff, but they don't realize, you know, why? What, you know, why do I want to do this? What is the reasons? Which then brings me on. You sort of flip things around a wee bit, where you try to focus on the motivation first, followed by goals. Yeah. And a lot of people don't like that. Um, I think, and, and I think actually what they're doing is they're viewing it at a more surface level and that's fine. So it's like, I want to, you know, I want to lose this much weight and the motivation is to fit in that dress or to, you know, look good at your wedding or whatever, or, or maybe it's your ex-girlfriend or boyfriend's wedding because you want them jealous or something. <laughs> it's like that, that's a very surface level way of thinking about life. And the problem with a, a motivation, if you want to call it that, um, and this is why words matter. Some people don't like to use the word motivation for what I talk about and they want to use purpose or, or your why. That's fine because motivation sounds too surface level to them. I don't care what you call things, but I just want to be specific in where I focus is the, the simple surface level stuff 
it's time bound typically it's external to you which is really dangerous so if it's not about you what happens when those external situations change you know either because they've come and gone so you you put you know it's like for a high school reunion or a college reunion you want to look good for it so that you know you impress people but what happens the day after the reunion or or worse yet at the reunion um mm-hmm. You know, what happens if, for, like for me, I wanted to lose weight because I didn't want the kids around me to think of me as the fat kid anymore. Well, then I lost weight and I went to college and nobody or university and nobody knew me as the fat kid. So my motivation was totally gone because it had nothing to do with me and who I was. And it had, it wasn't going to endure. Well, if your motivation doesn't endure, how is it supposed to keep you moving forward for the rest of your life? So I'm talking about like the big motivation that will get you through anything you face no matter what you're facing, when you're facing it, it's the thing that you can always come back to as your center and think about, you know, why am I on this path? Because there are going to be tough times and dark moments. That's called life. And that's okay. It's you, you need that, that purpose to come back to, to get yourself back on track and get through those toughest moments. Mm-hmm. Well, I see from there, then you've, you've done a lot of, um, you call it new bodies. Yeah. Haven't you? There's a lot of information there. <laughs> a lot. You're writing blogs and you're doing a lot of coaching, everything, you know. So, first of all, how do you find the time? <laughs> That's the first question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, it's interesting. I think I'm probably going to shut new bodies down because do a day and, and I'm doing work under my own name as well, like public speaking and, and that. Mm-hmm. So, new, new bodies is becoming duplicative, um, which is sad. But, uh, I still love that name. You know, it's like, that's what we're trying to get to. And I don't just mean the physical. I mean, so there's a catchphrase for it. It's enlighten your body. And enlighten is a very like mental kind of word. And the the body part is like, you know, when you change your mind, everything that your body experiences comes along with it. So, um, always, it always have a place in my heart, but new bodies and, and whether it's that or do a day or, or, you know, my own writing, um, and speaking and, and all those sorts of things. Um, how do I find the time for it? Well, I wasn't kidding. I don't sleep very much, which is not the best answer. Um, I've always been a morning person and it's really funny. The reason is because when I was a little fat kid, I used to wake up before everyone else so I could sneak down to the kitchen and eat with no one seeing me. Um, someone called me a food ninja. And I was like, okay, well, I like ninjas and I like food. So there you go. Um, no, but it's, it's really interesting. Like that ingrained that early morning rising into me. And now I use it for the better. So I get up early, I meditate, I exercise, I, I put my mind on what I want to achieve in that day and how it ties back to my purpose. Um, so that just gives me more hours in the day. Now I'm, I could fall asleep at 7.30 at night if you let me, um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't tend to get the chance, but I do travel a ton and yeah. I have learned to use my travel time really effectively. Um, so I never sign up for the Wi-Fi or very, very rarely do I sign up for Wi-Fi on flights because I want the world to leave me alone so I can produce. And I, I write like a madman when I'm on planes or I read, um, or I think about things and that may sound silly, but, um, just stop and think about what's going on. What, you know, what ideas are swirling in my head that might make for a good article or I'm working on my second book. So, you know, um, I might have something to think about in that. Uh, or some of the research for it. So I've just, you know, I very purposefully dedicate sections of my day when I'm not, you know, in a, a meeting for work or on a coaching call or, or doing a show like this to being pr- as productive as I possibly can. So I don't stop. 
um, which is probably part of why I weigh a little bit less than I wish I did right now because I'm, I'm going pretty hard. <laughs> but I think that's really important. And I also try to be really mindful in my day. And that means I'm not one to get lost in a social media news feed, which is, I mean, how many of us, you know, look down at your smartphone and start flicking your finger and next thing you know, an hour's gone by and you've done nothing. You know, like it, it's, it's kind of gross, but don't take your smartphone into the bathroom. You will, <laughs> and I'll, right? Like you, you'll yes. earn back. I mean, depending, you know, the frequency, you'll, you'll earn back significant, even if it's 15 minutes throughout the day. You can do a lot with 15 minutes. You can meditate quite meaningfully for 15 minutes. Oh, yes. So I, I try to be mindful in all of those sorts of things. And I also just, I'm like a whirlwind. I get things done really fast. Um, which is, yeah, I mean, my wife sometimes is just looking at me like, slow down. Like, nope, don't have time. <laughs> I was going, because literally now when we come back to this title, do a day, you literally do a day. <laughs> so I do the do. heck out of every day, man. <laughs> yeah. Which is good because you do, you know, you're, you're obviously very, very passionate about what you're doing and things. And then that obviously has led, led on to your TEDx talk. Yeah. Which is, which I didn't even know was live until you told me just now. I've been go. waiting for notification. Thank you. I see it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. So I watched it before you have. That's brilliant. Yeah. And I, I like, I mean, my mind was on during it, but I can't say I really know what happened. I just know I felt, I felt very good about it. I, people asked me how it went and I was like, there's nothing that I didn't say that I wish I said. And there's nothing that I said that I wish I didn't say. <laughs> And I didn't get caught on my words at all or, or any of the thoughts. And that's, I, I couldn't ask for anything different. Um, so could it have gone differently? Absolutely. As can everything in life. That doesn't mean it should or it needs to. I'm, I'm really good with how it went. I got my message out and I have people coming up to me afterward. There were a couple in tears, which is awesome. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, but it was, it was in a good way. Yeah, there were beautiful tears, you know. God, I just sounded really mean. <laughs> <laughs> very good yeah i love making people cry too it's great great <laughs> all right yeah well, i'm in good company then <laughs> <laughs> no but so like i'm guessing it was a nerve-wracking experience you know it wasn't i know i'm no. weird i'm weird like that everyone expects mm. it um I'm I'm good with public speaking. I've never had an issue with it. Um which my wife would tell you to tell you is cuz I'm very dramatic, but um if you're if you're talking about something that you know and you believe in, it should not be hard to speak publicly and and I absolutely appreciate the fear and anxiety that people have. Um I've coached a lot of people on public speaking and presenting to groups or you know in meeting settings and um one of the things that I say is is to be Jay-Z I should just put out a blog post on this today. People are like, what do you mean? Or I don't listen to rap. Um, it's He doesn't write lyrics. And his reason is, he says, if, if you know what you're talking about, you shouldn't need to write lyrics. You shouldn't need to memorize a script. So that's my point. If you don't believe in what you're saying and you need to script it out, then why are you on stage talking about it? Mm. And I, I fully appreciate, you know, there's some corporate settings or whatever where that can't be avoided. So... Yes, nothing is a hundred percent of the time, but generally speaking, if you're if you're choosing to get up on stage, speak about something you care about and know what it is you're there to speak on. Whether that's work or personal, you know, you should know what you're doing at work. Yeah. Um and if that's the case, it doesn't matter exactly what you say when you say it. 
it matters that the ideas come out and people understand them. And if you can't do that effectively, you're probably in the wrong space. Mm-hmm. So I knew what I wanted to say. Yes, I rehearsed. I practiced. I never wrote a script. I know what my story is. And I just needed to make sure I could get it in within the time allotted. Um, and so generally, once, once, one to two times a day, I would rehearse for a few weeks going into it. Um, and I had slides, but the slides didn't really matter. They were really just markers to accentuate what I was saying. But I didn't, you know, I'm not there to read slides. And if I messed up on the clicking, it just didn't matter. They were just sort of visuals behind me to sort of set the, the color of the conversation. So I had nothing to obsess about. No script, no slides to worry about. It's just like I'm there telling you my story and, and my feelings. And I hope that you take some inspiration from it. Mm-hmm. So I don't get I don't get worried about it. No, well, even even in obviously the TEDx, you know, it, it I we've seen a visual of you at your one of your I'm guessing it was your heaviest weight. Is that right? Whenever you were yeah, the, the the one in the dark gray suit. Yeah, when I said I was the mm-hmm. fat kid, it was right around then. I wasn't my heaviest, but I was probably at my fattest, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. So I I kept growing, um, but that's probably relative to my size. That's probably when I was around my worst. Maybe the following year, I was I was probably. I was 248 pounds in eighth grade. That, I think if you look at me then or when I was 16, those are the two times where I looked especially rotund. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never weighed myself after eighth grade because I couldn't, fit, like, I, you know, my pants kept getting bigger and bigger in size. So I knew I was gaining weight and I grew a bit too, but um, I knew I was gaining weight. I just couldn't face it. So I believe I was somewhere around 270. Um, and I got down to 180, so you know that's 90 pounds, not quite 100, but it's easier to say I lost 100 pounds. Yeah, <laughs> very good, very nice round number, very good. Yeah, and they're they're equally scary. I you know I don't care if you're two digits versus three digits. Like 90 pounds is a ridiculous amount of weight to lose. I yeah. I, I know people who've lost 500 pounds. You know it's like that, that's that's insane. Um, but it's it's equally daunting. Like it's all of it is just too much. And there are different degrees of too much, but it's just too much, and you never start. And I know that firsthand. Mm-hmm. That's amazing because you know, um, like adding all these things, you just naming everything in the book, the TEDx talk, you know, the amount of coaching you're doing, your full time job, the the family, very very busy, a lot going on. You must love what you're doing. I do. Um, I'm living. I'm living a life focused on my purpose. And as busy as it is and as tiring as it can can be, I come away from almost everything I get to do. And I say get to do because it's an opportunity and I'm very blessed to have it. Um, I'm just thankful for it. And I, you know, I try to reflect on that. Like um, gratitude is really important from a mindset standpoint. And that's, you know, like the the toughest, most stressful moments. Um, I still have a lot of gratitude that I have those moments. You know, even even if my wife and I have a disagreement, um, I may not have gratitude in that very moment, but I do have gratitude soon after, you know, once we talk through it, for just the fact that this is not someone I was supposed to even get a chance to argue with. Mm-hmm. You know, she was she was gone. There was no saving her. So the fact that she's even here to to disagree with me or, you know, not like something I did or whatever that that's a blessing in and of itself as long as we can work through what the problem is which you know we're we're still here so obviously we have 
But um, I try to really find something to be thankful in everything. We do that every night with our son as part of his bedtime routine is tell me something you're thankful for today. And we all go around. Each each one of us says something. And the rule is you have to at least have one. Yeah. That's fantastic. That really is. Um, like, you know, obviously this this podcast is the Fit My Matter side of things. It's all about mental health. That's really the focus. Now, your story from start to finish is all about mental health, no matter what way you look at it. That's ultimately, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. That's it the rest of it doesn't matter. Those are just symptoms of the mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because what I wanted to sort of ask you there then was, have you got one tip, two tips, whatever you might, might want to say on how to help your own mental health? Yeah. So obviously, if, if there's a, a, a true mental health issue that's quite extreme, you know, whether it's bipolar or... um schizophrenia is of course you know i'm not a physician i'm not qualified to give that sort of help but if we're not talking about an extreme situation like that the thing that i i have yet to find anyone who wouldn't benefit from this and most of us would benefit from it quite a bit and it's the self-love point Mm -hmm. because it's it's the foundation for everything else like it's actually the solid ground the foundation goes on like you don't build a house on quicksand right this is what matters most so you know, I said it before, if you don't allow for the possibility that you deserve better and you don't allow for the possibility that you have the capability to achieve better, nothing else will matter ever. And you will continue to beat yourself down to the point of, of going nowhere. And that, that, that's the first stop. So I, I always get into that first with everyone and I listen very carefully to how they talk about their story and themselves and where they've gotten to and how people view them and, I'm careful to see, is this someone who is really down on themselves? And what can we do about that? And a lot of them will push back and say, well, this is humility. You know, this is social grace. It's not good to be egotistical. Being egotistical is not the same thing as lacking self-love or or having too much self-love, rather. Being egotistical is going around bigging yourself up for things that you haven't done or that you don't deserve credit for. You know, it's different. It's giving yourself praise that you haven't you haven't deserved. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about is it's the little things on a daily basis that we fight. We fight, we fight the good ideas about us existing. So if someone, you know, you, you make a meal for someone and they thank you and they say they enjoyed, you know, I, I liked, I liked the meal so much or, you know, thank you for making this. How many of us respond? Oh, I burnt this or I under seasoned that or I, <laughs> I always use this example, but everyone gets it as like, Oh yeah. You know, they, like my brother would always say, Oh, you know, you should have been here last week. It was much better. And that, he always said that. And finally it was just like, why don't you ever have us here last week? Like every <laughs> time last week was a better meal. Um, so it's, you know, we just, we put it down or we fight over who worked later or whose boss is worse or, you know, who's struggling more at work and the winner is the person who's in a worse spot. Like, why are I mean, you the winner? Yours doesn't sort of. Yeah. <laughs> like we're, we're, we're proud about the bad. And actually, like, stop being self-deprecating. Stop, stop trying to prove that you have it worse, that things are more miserable for you and that that's somehow a good thing. Mm. And look for the gratitude and allow the gratitude about you. So I, I tell people, it's a little exercise I give people. I just say, stop the butt. As soon as that word butt forms in your mind, when there's a nice thought about you out there, whether it's from you or someone else, stop. You know, someone thanks you for having them, you know, have, making this great meal or tells you how much they enjoyed it, your response is just pronounced thank you. 
you know, it's not thank you, but it's not, you know, um, that was such a thought, a thoughtful gift you got me. Oh, uh, you know, you'd never, no, I'm glad you liked it is a fine thing to say back. You don't have to take away from someone saying like, you did a nice thing for me and I appreciate that. So just allow for the good in your life and recognize that you're actually completely capable of it if you allow for it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the single most important thing to me because all the rest of it, we can't even get there if you're still stuck in this, like, well, I don't deserve it. You know, I've got this miserable situation and that's the way it's going to be. And I'm not capable of getting over this. I'm not capable of digging myself out of this hole. You're the only one who's capable of it. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic, Brian. Thank you so much. That is amazing. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I just want to say look after yourself and look after the family. That's the most important yeah. thing. Yeah. And, Good and advice. The second book now. Actually, no, I'm still looking for the first book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll send you. Well, so I, I've, if, if anyone get it, uh, gets it on ebook, the, the update comes through automatically. Um, but for anyone who's, who already bought it in print, um, you can go to doadaybook.com slash update and you can download a PDF, um, of, of the updated text, but I'll send it through to you, Lee. Oh, thank you, Brian. Yeah. Thank you. And then I will finish it. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not that long, but it's, it's, primarily about self-love and i expanded the chapter on parenting that's never sat well with me I, I did hold back in that chapter and i talk a lot about vulnerability in the coaching work and the speaking work that i do and of course i wasn't being vulnerable there um so i i had some honesty with myself about it and i added another story in there that frankly i'm really not proud of i i failed pretty miserably and i was a monster to my son in this particular moment and um look it needed to be shared you know there's hopefully there's value and clarity in that added story and um if it helps anyone deal with their own behavior then it's worth it but i needed to get vulnerable and do that and that never sat well with me when i put the book out initially so enough is enough i need to add it fair play for you know actually once the book was out going back and saying no i need to put this back in you know that is your true vulnerability. So fair play, that's that is amazing. Thanks. Um, but as, once again, thank you so much. It was great chatting with you. Really, really was. Hopefully I loved it. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, you look after yourself, Brad. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Take care.